Key Economic Releases Affecting Fixed Income Yields Insights into Sectors Influencing Fixed Income Securities How AAM Plans to Capitalize on These Themes for Your Fixed Income Portfolio The Portfolio Fix is a podcast series featuring members of AAM's investment and portfolio management team. We will discuss the timely issues affecting the fixed income investments of our insurance clients. Welcome to another episode of the Portfolio Fix, a podcast series from AAM. My name is Patrick McGeever, and I'm a member of AAM's investment team. Today, as usual, I'll be speaking with Marco Bravo, who will provide AAM's latest views of the economy. And then I'll be joined by Andy Bolin, a senior analyst on our corporate team, who will talk about how he uses our ESG-related tools to analyze the utility sector. So with that out of the way, welcome, Marco. Thanks, Pat. I was hoping to cover two topics today. Uh, First, I'd like your takeaways from yesterday's FOMC meeting. And then secondly, I was hoping you could provide the listeners with AAM's latest outlook on the economy. So uh, I guess, first off, what stood out to you from the FOMC announcement yesterday? Sure. Well, I would describe uh, the overall uh, meeting uh, to be slightly more hawkish than what kind of both AAM and the consensus was expecting. And I'll provide some details around that. So first, with respect to their statement, uh, they inserted new language that suggests uh, a slowing in the pace of their asset purchases or, or tapering, as it's become known. Uh, could be announced soon uh, if we continue to see progress towards the Fed's dual mandate of full employment and price stability. Uh, Chairman Powell kind of defined what soon meant and that it could be as early as the next FOMC meeting, which is scheduled in November. And also hinted that once started, the tapering could end around the middle of 2022. So if if tapering starts in November or December, that implies roughly about 15 billion a month in reduced asset purchases from the current 120 billion a month. Uh, and that would be sooner than what AAM was, was forecasting. Okay. Um, the Fed also updated their interest rate forecast or what's known as their dots plot. And what it showed was that the uh, committee is now evenly split on whether to hold rates steady next year versus uh, increasing rates. So basically today, all but one uh, Fed official is looking for a liftoff in rates to occur in 2023. And that that is consistent with uh, AAM's view that the uh, first increase in Fed funds rate will occur in 2023. Okay. Um, Can I just stop you one second really quick? Um, you mentioned that the the um, purchases by the Fed would slow down uh, by about $15 billion per month. What asset class um, would they be reducing purchases in? We think they're going to reduce both treasuries and mortgages. So that $15 billion would translate into $10 billion in Treasury purchases and five billion in uh, mortgage-backed security purchases. Okay. 
Um, along with the, um, the Fed meeting, uh, they updated their forecast for GDP growth, uh, inflation, and, and unemployment. And so for, for the remainder of this year, or for 2021, they're expecting slower growth, um, slightly higher unemployment, and higher inflation relative to their forecast back in June. And to put some numbers behind that, GDP, they expect GDP to increase in 2021 by 5.9%, and that's down from 7%. Uh, the unemployment rate to end the year at 4.8, that's up slightly from 4.5%. And for core PC inflation uh, for this year to increase by 3.7% year over year, uh, and that's up from 3%. So, you know, slower growth, uh, slightly higher unemployment and uh, much higher inflation relative to what their forecasts were back in June. Okay, so that's that's the FOMC. Um, maybe update us, update the listeners on what AAM's growth estimates are and, and how does that compare with FOMC's uh, view of the market? And maybe uh, you could touch on our expectations for inflation and where we expect the 10-year to shake out. Sure. Well, with respect to growth, uh, we're somewhat in line with, with the Fed's change in that we've become a little bit more cautious on GDP growth, just given the increase in the Delta variant uh, cases from COVID. We still expect you know healthy growth in the overall economy, but uh, that the downside risks have, have definitely increased. Uh, with respect to inflation, you know, the big question is whether the uh, increase in inflation that we've seen largely attributable to supply bottlenecks uh, will level off or will continue to be persistent. And we think that inflation risks uh, will continue to linger uh, longer uh, than uh, previously anticipated. So that inflation will be with us for longer period of time. Okay. Uh, with respect to uh, 10-year yields, uh, we expect the 10-year yield uh, to end 2021 uh, in the range between 15 to 1.75%. Okay. And that's not too different than where we were uh, the last time we spoke at the end of August. That, uh, yeah, that's just modestly lower than where we were uh, the last time we spoke. Okay. Well, that's great. Thanks a lot for the update, Mark. We really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Pat. We're now joined by Andy Bolin, a senior analyst on our corporate team. So welcome, Andy. Thank you, Pat. Glad to be here. <laughs> Good to hear. Um, on our last podcast, we highlighted some of the concerns that our clients are having right now related to ESG. And Elizabeth Henderson highlighted several of the solutions that AAM can provide. Uh, we thought it'd be a good idea to actually show off one of the resources she mentioned, and that's you. Um, back in April, you joined us to speak about how the auto industry is rapidly adopting electric vehicles in their effort to reduce carbon emissions. And you also happen to cover utilities, which plays an even larger role in ESG investing. So. Uh, maybe you can just spend a minute on why this sector is so critical to the ESG environment. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, so we talked about autos, uh, and there's a lot of industries that are going to have to play a key role in eventual uh, decarbonization and meeting net zero goals. Um, but obviously, it all starts with the utility sector. The utility sector accounts for about 25% of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, which is by far, um, far and away the highest of any in, in sector out there. So uh, it's hard to see meeting any of our climate goals without substantial improvement in the utility sector. Um, that said, there's probably no sector that's been as aggressive in, in addressing those goals uh, as the utility sector. Um, every Across the industry, pretty much every company has aggressive has embraced ESG and, and has aggressive goals to meet uh, eventual net zero goals down the road. So the good news is they're on their way. They just have a long way to go. Okay. It also happens to be one of the largest constituents in the Bloomberg Barclays Ag too. So uh, I think that adds to the importance for our, uh, our clients for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's hard to, you know, you have to have some type of opinion in the utility sector given its weight. Uh, and, and like I said, the prominence of the ESG movement. Okay, and uh, one thing that Elizabeth also mentioned on her, or when she was discussing uh, the tools that we have to meet any ESG-related uh, issues for our clients is uh, Sustainalytics. Uh, can you maybe explain how you use this resource in your investment process? Sure. Um, yeah, we do. There are you know, a number of services out there, um, but we subscribe to Sustainalytics, which is, is one of the leaders and definitely uh, a lot of data and a lot of information that we can gain from Sustainalytics. Uh, they have two major, uh, two primary dimensions when they score exposure and management. Um, exposure is just the, the inherent risk that a company or an industry faces. Uh, management is is more of a qualitative decision or uh, analysis that shows that if management is addressing those risks properly, um, and in that in that case, Sustainalytics obviously the utility scores are pretty poor when it comes to exposure because they still have a lot of coal, a lot of uh, natural gas, fossil fuels um, that they're they're moving away from, but still exists. So that risk is still there. But what Sustainalytics does do is give them generally higher marks for management of that risk. Because like I said earlier, that most companies have pretty aggressive goals, uh, processes in place, uh, and strategies to eventually reduce their carbon footprint. Um, and that, so that's where Sustainalytics comes in. So you can get a really good snapshot of, of where a company is and kind of where they're going at the same time. Okay. And is are you using, or are there any examples out there of Sustainalytics scoring a company poorly uh, that you th think is, is still a good investment for our clients? Or conversely, if, if you think it scores well in the Sustainalytics framework that you think might not be a good investment for our clients? Uh, yeah, definitely. So um, as, as you know, as an analyst, you use a lot of different resources and there's not one that's an absolute um, you use on an absolute basis. And Sustainalytics is a great resource, but definitely has some limitations. Um, in, in that in that sense, it's used as more of a, a guidepost than an absolute scoring um, um, parameter. So one of the companies that we like is Puget Sound, which is a small company out of uh, Washington. And Sustainalytics uh, gives them pretty poor management score. 
um, and they dock them for not having extensive disclosures. Well, it, you know, they're a, they're a small company and probably don't have the staff that some of the large utilities do. And so they do have um, reports out there and they're, they're sustainable. Um, their goals are pretty clear and they're no less ambitious in decarbonization as the bigger companies, but they just don't have the disclosure uh, probably that some of these uh, bigger companies do. So we still like the company. They still plan to be coal-free uh, coal by 2025 to meet Washington state standards. Uh, they still have a goal to be net zero um, down the road. And so from, from our perspective, they're just as aggressive as any other company in meeting those goalsgoals. Uh, but unfortunately, Sustainalytics gives them a, uh, a weak management score, which puts them in the severe risk category. Um, and that's a great example of how we use Sustainalytics as a guide, uh, another resource, but ne not necessarily an absolute um, decision on whether we buy or sell a security. Okay. Andy, before we move on here, I wanted to just talk about uh, how Sustainalytics scores the holding companies and the operating companies within these utilities. Do they distinguish between the two, or is it a one ticker fits all? It, it, at this point, um, uh, Sustainalytics and pretty much all the SG scoring that I've seen uh, is really at the hold co level um, by ticker. Uh, but it raises a really good question, right? Because in ESG investing, it, investors really have to make their own decisions. Um, do we look at the absolute level? Do we look at where the company is going? Uh, and this is another one of those uh, decisions is that uh, within the same company, you might have a, a, a subsidiary that's 100% transmission and has no uh, coal or, or carbon generation, uh, whereas there might be another subsidiary. So an investor can make that decision whether they want to uh, focus on ESG at the parent company level or they could uh, focus on the opcos and, and concentrate on the opcos where um, – where maybe the, the green profile is a little bit more attractive. So right now, from a scoring perspective, uh, everything I've seen has is, is been focused at the parent company by ticker. Okay, so that's, that is perhaps uh, another example of where a company might have a negative or a severe rating at the holding company, according to Sustainalytics, but you come in and say, hey, wait a second, this operating company is solely transmission and distribution, and therefore it has a much lower risk than what is being characterized by Sustainalytics. Is that fair to say? That that's very fair to say, um, and that's you know again that's that's what complicates ESG investing a little bit is that uh, these companies uh, they might have some coal genera generation left, and they might it might be around for another five or seven years. Um, but they're also the companies that own the key components of the grid that are going to enable us to move to a greener environment. So um, in the same company, you have a, both a positive and a negative. And again, that's mm -hmm. what probably ESG investor has to decide for themselves what they want to look at. That's a real interesting concept. Maybe we can move on to talk about what you're seeing in the new issue market right now. Um, what are you seeing in terms of new utility issuance and how ESG is playing a role in that? Uh, yeah, we're seeing more and more um, um, ESG bonds, particularly the green bonds being issued by utilities. Um, 
ICA, uh, International Capital Markets Association has uh, uh, parameters in place to, to what qualifies as a green bond or a social bond um, or a sustainable bond. And that has accounted for about 17% of global issuance uh, in June. Now that's a global number here in the U.S. We're we're behind that because the, the issuance is really dominated by European com- countries who are we're ahead of us in all aspects of ESG. Uh, that said, we're catching up, and and there's a pretty good, probably about twenty um, percent or so of the recent issuance from the the utility sector has been ESG labeled. Uh, so we're definitely seeing a move in that direction, and and we get to see more and more opportunities to buy those securities. Okay, so you said about twenty percent of new issuance has been from the utility space has been green or ESG related. How is pricing looking for those securities? Is it uh, is it on top of the existing conventional bonds that have been issued by these issuers, or is it uh, inside or wide? How would you characterize that? Or is there enough information right now to even make that judgment? Yeah, it's, it's really difficult. The sample size is pretty small yet. Um, but generally, rule of thumb is maybe five, maybe possibly 10 basis points uh, inside of existings. Um, that's a general rule that I've heard people mention. Uh, there's so many variables when you look at a new issue that it's hard to distinct, hard to exactly say that maybe to be that exact with that number. But by and large, that's kind of what people are um, from capital markets groups are saying is what the green premium is worth. Okay. So uh, before we wrap up here, are there any other utility or ESG related issues that you're keeping a real close eye on right now? Um, yeah, it's it's uh, a lot of interesting things going on right now. We all know about wind and solar and uh, the direction of where the, the industry is going as far as the amount of generation coming from renewables. Uh, but really what we want to watch is further technological investments because the, the first 80 percent, it's the old 80-20 rule, right? The first 80 percent is going to be easy. The last 20 percent is going to be hard. Right now we probably don't have solutions for that last 20 percent. So, uh, so we're watching things like um, hydrogen, battery storage, and, and different technologies like that that really aren't as, as immediately prominent as wind and solar. Uh, but definitely hold potential to, to eventually meet our goals down the road. So, again, I would like uh, investors to think about giving companies credit for, um, you know, maybe that's not an immediate benefit, uh, but companies that are on the forefront of, of, of those technolo- technological advances, to me, uh, should be in the, uh, should be looked at by potentially SG investors. Yeah, and, and another thing to watch, uh, and we, we focus a lot on greenhouse gas emissions and decarbonization, but re- utilities really do have a lot of, of competing goals that they're trying to achieve. They have to, they have to balance that green movement with what, with what the public really wants, and that's reliability, safety, and affordability. Like we've recently seen with hurricanes or fires in California, um, the winter storm in Texas, uh, utilities really are faced with a lot of challenges and the fact that they're meeting those challenges at the same time they're trying to reach these decarbonization goals is really uh, really you got to give credit to those utility companies uh, for putting the effort forward so um, it's not easy to balance all those competing um, objectives um, but that's definitely something to watch uh, because environmentally focused uh, strategy is great 
Um, but the public's uh, willingness to put up with that really wears thin after a while when you start talking about reliability, safety, and affordability. So what, the other thing to watch is, is the balance of those going forward. Yeah, I think that's a real critical point you make there, Andy. So thanks a lot. That's great. Really informative. And I think that explains a way we're tackling the ESG requirements for our clients. So thank you for that information. My pleasure, Pat. Great. And we also thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you have any other questions, please reach out to your portfolio manager or our marketing team at aamcompany.com. During our next podcast, I'll be joined by Marco and a member of our investment team to discuss a timely issue affecting the fixed income markets. Thank you.